hey, Matt and Tim, congratulations to, well, 200 episodes. Like, who does that? What's wrong with you? Why would anyone go 200 episodes? I mean, pff, I'm already ready to quit here with you now. Well, on the other hand, we are not as talented as these two guys, so. Yeah, that's no joke. You're not. I mean, yeah, we're not. <laughs> they actually know what they are talking about. Like, they have, like, knowledge. They do their resources. and you They know, use big words. Yeah, I, and I know some of them words, one of them fancy words. Well, I have to look them up every once in a while. So. Well, but sometimes they can't tell the difference from, you know, what is one year of a show and 200 episodes. But, well, you know, everybody has his shortcomings. It's true. Congratulations, Matt and Tim. Yeah, way to go, guys. Yeah, it's muted. Okay. Everything, everything's taken care of. We can actually give them our congratulations now, so hit it. Hey guys, it's a cat. Miranda and I just wanted to congratulate you on 200 episode of the SLS cast. I think I started listening in the early double digits and you're still my favorite movie review podcast. And it's been great getting to know you guys over the past couple of years. Keep up the good work, guys. Hey, you guys rock. We freaking love you. 200 episodes is awesome. Looking forward to 200 more. Congratulations, guys. All right, I think we got it. I don't care. As long as the check cleared. Cheap mother... All right, all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Welcome, one and all, to episode 200, 200 of the SLS cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this would be a classic. We've got to go with a classic here. So this has to be the classical Monopoly game episode of the SLS cast. Because, as everyone knows, when you pass go, you collect... $200. Or pounds, if you're in Britain. Maybe even euros, if you're in the euro zone in the EU. Um, and yes, with that wonderful little bit of formerly Parker Brothers, but now Hasbro knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. Matt, we did it. We made it to 200 all right. Thanks again, everybody. Y'all have a nice life. <laughs> so whenever you play Monopoly uh, in England, is it 200 pounds? Do they still keep the 200 thing going or do they convert it? Like, is, or is there like a conversion process where no, they just use pounds? Okay. So it's still so, like 200 pounds. Yes. They okay. Get 200 pounds. And, you know. That's that's what they do. Maybe they, you know, maybe they get flashy and they say quid. I don't know. I'm not there. <laughs> so how's it how's it feel? Two hundred consecutive weeks of recording our lovely little podcast. Are you tired of it yet? Ugh, I just want to. Uh, yeah. I ask you that when you've probably had you've been going through your hell week the past week. <laughs> With Dude, school and everything, yet. I'm I'm not yeah this 
Sadly, this is not the day to ask me that question. <laughs> I'm I'm glad that we've done it. I mean, it's definitely something that no one will ever take away from us, and no one will probably ever know that we did, but no one can ever take it away from us. And um I, I think it's definitely been worth it. It's, I mean, if nothing else, if literally and really and truly brass tacks down to nothing, you know, we've been able to, through our ups and downs and our arguments, I mean, we've really kind of cultivated a good friendship over the last five and a half years, really close to six years. Um, and um, that is awesome. Not to mention, we're both kind of leaving a legacy. I know I've got kids who will one day listen to some of these i'm sure um and you know maybe there will be a little a little tim or timette running around uh who will also want to do the same someday so we've got a legacy and not everybody not everybody has that so this is true unless something happens and podbeam just crashes completely and we lose all of our audio and also my hard drive crashes i was going to say uh, our Mediafire account would have to crash. My hard drives, plural, would have to crash. Your hard drive would have to crash, and the world would and Podbean would have to go down. And yeah, so I, I think I think you know, barring the zombie apocalypse, we're in pretty good shape. So two hundred episodes. I'm wondering how many how many shows have made it to two hundred in the amount of time that we have. Um, not as many as you'd think. I mean, outside of like morning talk shows and drive time shows and stuff like that, because they, they have to go every day. Um, but I mean, like I was looking at this American life. Okay. This American life is just about at 600 episodes and they've been doing it for like 26 years. So I think we're, I think that's, that's like pretty damn good that, we're we're a third of the way to the amount of content that has been produced for this American life and we've done it in 20% of the time. And we're not talking about quality of content, just See, the just sheer quantity. number. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know, but hey, uh, maybe maybe if, maybe we can get WBEZ out of Chicago to come talk to us. Maybe we can do that, too. So I did a quick search. Uh, there's On Forbes.com, there is a website, or well, the website is Forbes.com, but there's an article about shows that made it to the uh, 200 Club or joined the 200 Club. And the first five are, I, I guess they're, they're obvious once you start thinking about it. Uh, number one is Gunsmoke, 635 yeah. episodes. Number two, The Simpsons, 498 episodes. Number three, Law and Order, 456 episodes. The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet, 435 episodes. And then Bonanza with 413 episodes. And of all of those shows, only one is really and truly current. <laughs> that is true. And that, well, actually, the show Jag is number 20 with 227 episodes. Have you ever seen an episode of Jag? Uh, once, really? Because was it by accident? I, yeah. No, no. I I was visiting my parents, and ah, that makes sense. Both, yes, them that both makes having sense. been in the Navy, 
Oh, really? And I didn't know Jack that. Jack is Navy Law. Yeah. They were very taken with that show. So I did watch an episode of that show. It was all right. Um, I'm, you know, for what it was, nighttime CBS, I think, maybe NBC, but I think CBS drama. Um, okay. That's kind of like how MASH was with me growing up. Every time I went to my great-grandmother's house, MASH was always on. So that's how I was exposed to watching that. So whenever I hear the song, uh, well... Suicide is Painless? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, I mean, uh, I mean, not not the lyrics, but just, just the music itself. <laughs> I always think about just watching MASH over at my grandmother's house in a really tiny little house out in Pasadena, Texas, and... Sweltering hot outside, eating gumbo, really spicy gumbo, and yeah, watching that program. But yeah, I mean, did, was there any TV show that you grew up watching, like at your grandparents' house or great grandparents' house, that you kind of got stuck with? Oh, golly gee, um, hee haw, hee haw at the oh, that's at good. the grandparents' house. Yes, it was hee haw. Um, well, at my mom's grandparents' house, they would put it on what was called at the time TNN, the Nashville Network. Uh, you guys know it now. I think it's, is it still Spike TV? I'm pretty sure it's Spike TV. Um, where you can see such wonderful shows as A Thousand Ways to Die or whatever that towing show is where they'll like, uh, turn into a game show. And if you like, get the questions right you don't get your car towed away <laughs> truly american classics so anyway yeah but this this used to be the national network and so they would show all sorts of uh, all sorts of backwood shows and um to show you just how pervasive hillbilly culture is uh my mother's family is from upstate new york okay New York, you think north of Mason-Dixon line. Yankees, you think, uh, you know, culture, or at least, if nothing else, you think Queens and <laughs> all that kind of stuff. There's just as podunk out there as it is if you were to go out to Mississippi. I swear to God. So they would literally, I'd come inside to, uh, from playing and stuff, and what are they watching? TNN, and it's usually fucking hee-haw. So I had to watch Hee Haw, which is basically, it was like the remaining variety show that refused to die, all centered around all things hillbilly and country western music as well. So, uh, yeah, that was a steady diet of that. Now, on the flip side of that, with my dad's parents, so my Mimi and my granddaddy, um, who were, you know, in Texas, in Beaumont, Texas, um, oh God, it was either John Wayne movies, or Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy, like constantly, like my like Mimi would actually just record it. She got a VCR just to record and have have it on all the time. So she even had one of these things. It was like a you know fifty sixty dollar jobby at the time that you could interactively try and play Wheel of Fortune while you were watching it on TV. That's how dedicated she was to wheel of fortune and then of course jeopardy would come on after wheel of fortune so. when i uh so <laughs> that reminds me of something then i'll get into the news of the weird uh as a kid in the early 90s you know having a game boy or uh, like a game gear sure yeah like one of the, one of those like handheld game 
con- not it's not a console, but the handheld gaming system or plat, you know. Oh, whatever. like the Tiger Games, like the little Tiger Games, those ones. Sure, kind of like it's 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 not it's like the dumbed down version of a Game Boy, and it's kind of it's kind of like you're holding a plastic wallet, and you have the two buttons on the side, and it's electronic. Yeah, yeah, the Tiger Game, yeah, the old Tiger Games, yeah, or the Game and Watch Games if you did the Nintendo version. Exactly, yeah. So. I, I mean, that's when I was growing up around that time, where it was kind of like, it was cool to have things like that, so, um, and, you know, I, I loved my, uh, loved my great-grandmother when she was still alive, she was great, and it, it came from a very sweet place, but at the time, I just couldn't understand why she did it, so she gave me, because um, she knew I was, I enjoyed video games, and she said, you know, I noticed she didn't have one of those handheld gamer boys that all the, all these kids got. It's like, no, ma'am. She's like, well, I got something even better. So she goes into her room, and she comes back with this giant plastic brick to play. And, and it was a baseball game. And I forget what it was called, but it was giant. It was huge. It was it was like three times the weight of a hiking boot, pretty much. And you sat there, and you, you play baseball with it. And really, it's just a light that kind of like pops up around <laughs> the field that's painted I, on the front. And I think it, it's from like I, 1973 I, or, you know, something like that. Okay. I had the, the um, football version of that. Um, and it was this, uh, I don't know, it was probably about 13 or 14 inches long. and But it was two players. And you could literally play football, and it was just this basic red LCD screen, and the lights would individually light up on there, and they were just little dashes. These little dashes would go, and then one of the dashes would move, and it was the ball. And then when it would move to a certain point, then that other dash would start moving forward, and that was the carrier. And so you had to take your little... And they're all the same color. The dashes are all the same color. And so you're then trying to take your little dash and move it across. It was just ridiculous. Um, but yeah, I totally remember those. Um, but that's because I'm way older than you. <laughs> <laughs> and they're from like they were from like 1980, okay? Not 1973. All right, well, I'm going to quickly move into a little bit of news of the weird. Matt, I think you will find this incredibly fascinating. If not, I think you will change your 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 history degree focus to possibly this, solely this. Via vice.com, or I guess it's broadly.vice.com, witches allegedly stole penises and kept them as pets in the Middle Ages. This is written by Callie Boosman. And it says this, Since time immemorial, men have worried irrationally about perceived threats to their penises. Long before there was castration anxiety, there was something far more sinister. The myth of phallus-stealing witches who kept wriggling dismembered members as pets. The best-known description of this practice occurs in the Malleus Maleficarum, a 15th-century witch-hunting manual written by Heinrich Kramer. Historians typically regard it as a ludicrous and misogynist 
texts that nonetheless resulted in countless vicious murders of women accused of witchcraft. In The Salem Witch Trials Reader, Frances Hill describes it as, quote, one of the most terrifying and obnoxious books ever written, end quote. The malleus is rife in obvious anxieties about female sexual desire, as folklorist Maura Smith notes in her paper, Penis Theft in the Malleus Maleficarum, Quote, many of the crimes attributed to witches concerned sexuality, copulation with incubus devils, procuring abortions, causing sterility in stillbirth, and impeding sexual relations between husbands and wives. End quote. In the Middle Ages, witches were thought to have various magical dick-ruining capabilities, the most sinister of which is the ability to make the sex organ vanish entirely. According to Smith, the Malleus Maleficarum details three specific case studies in which witches were said to have magically deprived men of their penises. The first two simply involved men having their genitals hidden by some magical illusion. Witches, quote, can take away the male organ, end quote. Heinrich Kramer writes, quote, not indeed by despoiling the human body of it, but by concealing it with some glamour. End all quotes there. The article does go on uh, for quite a bit more. There are pictures, so do check it out. Again, it's from vice.com via the Broadleys section. Witches allegedly stole penises and kept them as pets in the Middle Ages. What do you think about that, Matt? Uh, Would you have jumped on the bandwagon if you were a witch during the Middle Ages? And or are you now going to talk to your counselor to change your degree (sighs) path? Well, I, I think, well, no, I don't, I, 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 in for a penny, in for a pound, I guess, or in for an inch, in for a yard, depending on how you want to go with it. And the but, size of the um, penis, if you get my drift. <laughs> and that's the thing, it's like, physiologically speaking, wouldn't removing the penis kind of defeat the purpose for the witch? I mean, because then there's no more blood flow, so it's just this kind of teensy little thing in your maybe that's why it was a toy so i don't know who came but i'm oh sorry but oh no so so i'm thinking that maybe that's where their additional magic would come in because um you know then they could keep it fully uh i guess toy worthy if you know what i mean dildo style but I, I, but I, I mean, it would be a really convenient thing in the Middle Ages, you know. Oh, you've got a small dick. No, a witch did it to me. A witch took away my penis, and maybe that's why they would do it. And then, of course, the woman who pointed it out was the witch, and it was just a good way to make sure that all men got to pretend that their dicks were big. But like, you know, who's the guy or the multiple guys that? that stood at the public altar and addressed the townspeople like, I I have no dick. Like, I don't know what happened to my dick. That witch stole my dick. A witch stole my dick. I don't know what happened. Nobody said, prove it. Nobody said, drop your drawers, take off them layers, and let's see that tiny wee. You know? And and let's see the remnants of the wee. I guess maybe they were just doubling down on the fact that they were never going to have sex again because... How do you have sex with somebody after that? Because clearly you can't. Otherwise, they'll know that you are lying. So, I don't know. It just seems weird. But they did a lot of weird things back then. So, 
One or two weird things. Yeah. Well, that's definitely that's definitely news of the weird. Yeah. So. Happy <laughs> October! Cool. Kicking it off Yay. with some sexy penile witches. Indeed. Indeed. All right. Well, let's uh, check the old mail sack there. And, uh, you know, conveniently, no witches removed its penis. But whatever. It's a mailbag. So what are you going to do? Um, you, too, of course, can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. And, of course, if you'd like to follow us on Twitter, you can do so by following at the SLScast. So um, we're checking the show at SLScast.com, and there's nothing there. So, yay, happy 200th. Uh, yay. All right, so I guess then we should do some news. What do you say? Let's news this thing up. <laughs> <laughs> and we honestly wonder why we don't have any mail. Okay, here we go, folks. It's the news. <laughs> First up, from me, from CinemaBlend.com, by way of Connor Schwartfiger and the kitty, that fracking cat who recommended this to us on Facebook over the weekend. IMDB just made a major change in regards to actors' profiles. That is correctamundo. If you've ever been to IMDB, then you already have a pretty clear understanding of the website's layout. Actors and filmmakers have thoroughly detailed profiles that meticulously list their filmographies along with very specific personal information. An actor's age has always been a prominent aspect of such a profile, but a new California law will force a website like IMDB to remove such information at an actor's request. According to a brand new report from THR, it seems that California Governor Jerry Brown has officially signed a law into effect that requires entertainment websites like IMDb to remove an actor's age from a profile upon request. If the site has not yet published the age, then the request could also serve to keep them from doing so in the first place. The intention of this legislation is to protect actors against widespread age discrimination, which, while already illegal in all industries, has become a widespread issue in Hollywood. Although this may seem like a fairly trivial matter on the surface, there's actually some fairly poignant rationale for putting this legislation into effect. The persistence of ageism in the Hollywood casting process has become a fairly high-profile phenomenon in recent years, and this law hopes to take specific steps towards combating the practice. The issue reached a fever pitch last year when Maggie Gyllenhaal revealed that at 37 years old, she was considered, quote, too old, unquote, to portray the love interest of a 55-year-old male actor. Ageism takes the the meritocracy out of Hollywood and creates an unfair advantage for someone simply because they're younger. With that in mind, the issue of ageism has received quite a bit of attention recently, particularly from the female side of Hollywood. Prominent actresses like uh, Sandra Bullock and Helen Mirren have vocally spoken out against the practice, and this piece of legislation seems to uh, seems like an earnest attempt to move in a more egalitarian direction. Uh, I'm going to stop there. That is about a third of the article, and I highly encourage you to check out the rest of Connor's work over there at CinemaBlend.com. Again, IMDb just made a major change in regards to actors' profiles. Um, all right, so I don't 
personally, I, I of course we don't want to uh, discriminate purely on the basis of age. Ageism, of course, is bad. Um, but on the same token, while I can certainly feel for Maggie Gyllenhaal, I I don't think it was her age that was the problem, and this is pure speculation based on my own personal subjective tastes. I just find her to be not very attractive, and she already looks old to me. And I think that maybe that was the problem, and they just kind of blamed it on her being too old. I'm not I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying I personally think that's what happened. I'm no looker. I'm a big old fat ass. That's fine. Uh, I'm also not trying to be on screen. <laughs> Audio only for the win. But um, to that end, it's also not a fair blanket to put on there for two reasons one as much as as much as uh people may hate to admit it society looks to the next new thing always especially in pop culture uh it's always got to be the new the quick the exciting what's going to attract the attention what's going to get the dollar and the simple fact of the matter is is that that when you're looking for something new it defies the current or the established. And it, it's it, it's kind of like youth is wasted on the young and wisdom wasted on the old. It it simply is. Um, I don't think, again, that you should just say, oh, you're just flat out too old to play a spy. You're flat out too old um, as a man or a woman to play a jet pilot or whatever. But at the same time, these are stories and these stories are written with a certain aspect of characterizations in mind. And perhaps it's not that uh, it's not as much as people are saying, you're just too old as the people who are claiming this grievance are not wanting to accept the reality of getting old, which means Maybe, and again, purely speculation on my part, purely a subjective input here. But let's take Helen Mirren, for example. She's a lovely, beautiful woman, okay? There's no doubt. And has been for 40 years. No question. But at the same time, maybe she's not wanting to play grandmas. But there's still a, there's still a ton of fucking roles out there for grandmas, she's just not wanting to do those because I consoled. That's not to say that the role isn't there for her. She wants something else. Okay, and again, this is just purely hypothetical. It's that kind of thought process. It's not that the role isn't available to you. It's not that there aren't roles that you can't take. You don't want those roles that fit the demographic you're in it's not it's not necessarily a story's fault that it takes place um with two people who are teenagers that fall in love for the first time someone like sandra bullock is not going to fit into that role she is not in that demographic she might be able to play the mother of the teenagers in love 
But see, she might not want to play the mom because the mom is old. Do you see how it works? Um, and so I, I just, you have to be really careful with legislating that because you don't think that, I mean, as much as I guess it might theoretically help to not know how old uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal is anymore or not be able to go to IMDb but go to somewhere else um, and find that same information. See, movies are a visual medium and so is television for the most part, unless, of course, you know, we're talking about CGI. And you're going to be able to see how old they are anyway. So, uh, that's that's that. And I've definitely rambled on for like five minutes here. So what do you think, Tim? Um, I would definitely love to hear your thoughts on this. Well, I'll tell you this. With the talk of rolls, I really want to eat some rolls. But I don't think those are the type of rules you were you were talking about. Not 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 a uh, not hot buttered rules. Now, so yeah, Maggie Gyllenhaal. I honestly can't think of the last thing I've seen her in. I think she's a fine actress. Me personally, she's just never really. I, I mean, I've never been too like incredibly impressed by her performances, but I, I do think she's a very fine actress, and I know that she ha- does have a good following, and uh, she has been in a, a number of very good movies. But when it comes to ageism, I think it's still a, just as bad as sexism uh, in in Hollywood, and I guess even to another extent, racism as well. Uh, if you look at the type of movies that don't get made, which being non-white movies, I you know. Uh, and I do understand nowadays you're seeing more black, uh, well, I don't, I don't, not, it's not black content, but urban films, which to me sounds a lot worse than saying black, personally. Uh, but you're seeing more urban films, and, they're, and more urban films are being better received. Take Birth of a Nation, for example. I am very much looking forward to seeing Birth of a Nation. It's been getting rave reviews. Look at 12 Years a Slave from some years ago. Great reviews. You're seeing more uh, African-American uh, directors. You're seeing more women directors. Yes, there aren't as many women directors, even uh, African-American women directors especially. So we're seeing it a little bit more so nowadays but it's not as much but we are i i I do think that hollywood is progressing ageism honestly i think that's kind of on the back burner while hollywood is trying to be a little bit more progressive with racism and sexism in film and television i suppose but I, i think mainly mainly film you see it the most with ageism, I get that a, a lot of big budget or many of the big budget studio movies, you don't see them starring older women. Like you look at uh, is the superhero movies, you have the older woman, you have the grandmother, like the, the wife character, the main girl or the two main girls in the Avengers movies or the two main women in the Avengers movies are Scarlett Johansson and is it Caitlin Olsen? Uh, the Olsen girl. And she's in her 20s, late 20s, early 30s. Scarlett Johansson's is in her mid-to-late 30s. And the other women who are older, uh, Jeremy Renner, Hawkeye's wife, is in her 40s. Uh, Marissa Tomei, who she's now... Is Marissa Tomei 50? 48, 50, 49, 50? Something like that now. Um, She's now going to be Peter Parker's mother. 
So you're not seeing a lot of younger uh, or older women playing parts like Scarlett Johansson and Olsen. But you see that all across the board when it comes to big-budget Hollywood films. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I could be totally wrong, but... Well, to uh, be clear, I, I don't want to... I hope I'm not coming off as... No, I, I don't think so. You know, yeah. Ageist asshole. I just think that there's... I think that there's more sides to this argument than are being presented. And I think that it's... That, as usual, it's not always as simple as um, one side's just being... Uh, put down and but and that's not to say that that's not happening i just think that um um that there that there's just more to it um and i don't know that the that it's a valid point i don't know that that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to fix it because i don't i definitely don't want to say that but i think that we just um i think you have to be fair and objectively look at it from different angles so you know but that is uh, that is where we are. So go ahead, sir. What, what, what else you got for us today in the not weird news department? <laughs> All right. I'm going to uh, start off with a super short piece of news about a passing. Herschel Gordon Lewis, the godfather of gore, passed away at the age of 87 via avclub.com. Something Weird Video reports Herschel Gordon Lewis, the director, credited with inventing the splatter subgenre of horror cinema, has died. Lewis began in the film industry by producing and directing exploitation movies featuring nudity, a profitable endeavor that nonetheless limited their ability to be marketed and distributed, thanks to censorship by the Motion Picture Production Code. However, he soon became known as the godfather of gore for his gruesome and sometimes silly outings released throughout the 60s and 70s. 1963's Blood Feast, which featured some great ad copy for the movie, is arguably his best-known film, showcasing gore effects that included an actual sheep's tongue. As Lewis told Film Journal, quote, I've often compared Blood Feast to a Walt Whitman poem. It's no good, but it was the first of its kind. End quote. Blood Feast kickstarted a run of cult classics like 2000 Maniacs. In The Wizard of Gore, his films delivered full-color splatter effects that soon were adopted by low-budget and exploitation filmmakers throughout the world. As Lewis told the Bright Lights Film Journal in 2001, quote, I see filmmaking as a business and pity anyone who regards it as an art form and spends money based on that immature philosophy, end quote. In 1972, after releasing the Gore Gore Girls, the Gore Gore Girls, hopefully not Al Gore Girls, Lewis left filmmaking to begin a second career in advertising, focusing on direct marketing and copywriting. When Adweek asked him for advice for young marketers entering the profession, Lewis explained that you have to, quote, analyze and think if this was aimed at me, what would my reaction be? Would my heart beat a little faster? End quote. Lewis also wrote several books on the subject of advertising. Uh, and the article does go on from there. Again, R.I.P. Herschel Gordon Lewis, the godfather of gore via avclub.com. Now, moving on to my discussion-y piece of news. And this pertains to IMDb as well. Via SlashFilm.com, is IMDb thinking of switching to a five-star rating system or prioritizing critic ratings? This is written by Peter Scaretta, and it says this, 
Could the Internet Movie Database be considering a switch to a five-star rating system down from the 10-point user rating system they have employed for the last 25 years? IMDb users have recently been asked to take a survey which suggests the movie database is considering changes to the way they present opinionated information on the site. The study even indicates that they are considering expanding the opinions of film critics on the site. Could the IMDb rating system be in for a dramatic change? Among the many questions in the survey, IMDb asked visitors if they preferred a 5-star rating system or the 10-point rating system currently on the site. They asked users to pinpoint how many stars or points determine if a movie is considered good on both of the scales. Say what you will about the IMDb user ratings, but as someone who grew up using the site on a daily basis, I have found it to be highly valuable for film discoveries and suggestions. Nowadays, a squad of fanboys can quickly inflate a movie's user rating, especially around the week of its release. This certainly makes that data harder to trust in the early months, but IMDb is the largest sample of moviegoer opinions available anywhere, and as the sample grows, like any poll, that data tends to become more representative of the mass audiences. And they do go on to talk about uh, more of the questions that were asked that people were polled or were uh, questioned on. Uh, Another one of the questions was that whether people prefer user ratings and user reviews over critics' reviews, which is kind of interesting. So yeah, I think this is a pretty interesting article. Do check it out. It's uh, via SlashFilm.com. Is IMDb thinking of switching to a five-star rating system or prioritizing critic ratings? Matt, what do you think? Do you want to see a five-star rating system on IMDb? Do you prefer the ten-star rating system, or do you just not really care do you you just want your half stars on netflix (laughs) um honestly yeah i want half stars and um you know what fuck it i want quarter stars on netflix too but um i'll I'll settle for half stars Uh, seriously though i think um i think the original idea at the time was so few people are willing to give tens that it allowed for a great deal of flexibility, but I think that there's just such a huge amount of influx of users that a five-star rating system is easier to deal with, and I think it's easier to make make more sense out of because you see these, you see your average IMDb, and it's like you know six point three, and you're like, huh, um, when really a six would suffice or what have you. So. I can see why it would just kind of simplify it. Plus, I think it gives um, fresh perspectives for people now going into rate as well as looking back on where it was, uh, on where those ratings would be adjusted to in a five-star rating system. So, um, but in terms of do I care? Eh, it is what it is. Um, I, I don't use IMDb for that. So, or let me rephrase that. Very rarely do I use IMDb for that. But I can certainly see the value in it. Indeed. Actually, real quick before we move on to your next piece of news, going back to your old piece of news, I kind of just came across this in an article from last year, May 20th, 2015 on The Wrap. Maggie Gyllenhaal on Hollywood ageism, I was told 37 is too old for a 55-year-old love interest. Yeah, we. I'm pretty sure we covered that when it happened. Did we? Okay, yeah. So check this article out too. I saw a couple of the quotes and it was just kind of 
interesting. So she's not technically wanting younger roles. She's having even a hard time getting roles like this. So, sorry. I just wanted to point that out real quick. Cool beans. All right. From ScreenRant.com, by way of Cooper Hood, Warner Brothers CEO says Ben Affleck's Batman film is 18 months out. You heard that right. I'm going to condense this uh, super down, super fast. Uh, Warner Brothers CEO Jeff uh, Bukes <laughs> spoke recently at the 25th annual Goldman Sachs Communicopia Conference. And he says, quote, Ben announced a Batman movie that he's going to direct, star, write for. I think it's a year and a half out. So the strategy worked, end quote. Now, a lot of people are saying, according to the article, that it's supposed to occupy 2018 of October. Um, if it did that, if it did go a year and a half directly, that would put the release date nearly identical to Batman v Superman two, two, uh, uh, just two years later. So um, apparently that's pretty unlikely. But either way, it looks like uh, it could be construed as a year and a half out for pr- uh, for production to begin, for filming to begin. But it seems like there is no stopping this Ben Affleck movie, uh, Batman movie. I am super excited to know this because if you've got the CEO on record saying it's happening and we've got, you know, slated time for it, even if it means production to to begin or for release, uh, which I think would be even better, um, it's good news. What do you think there, Tim? Do you agree? And again, you please feel free to head to ScreenRant.com to check this article out. Um, but I'm excited. I am super, super, super excited for this. What do you think there, Tim? Yes, me too. What was the article? What was the title of the article? Warner Brothers CEO says Ben Affleck's Batman film is 18 months out. Now, 18 months. I guess they've been working on the story for a while now, right? It's like ever since Batman v Superman, Dawn of the Dead or whatever it was called, came out. <laughs> well, They've been talking about say, Yeah, Ben Affleck. No, I was just going to say, Ben Affleck, there was a, we did an article back when uh, it was still in uh, production that Ben Affleck was really taking time to learn the ins and outs of this, of this particular style of, of filmmaking so that he would be better prepared to do an action movie, which means he probably had story ideas from as far back as when he was initially up for the role. Um, and then he's just been gleaning those story ideas and then looking at scripts, you know, what have you, or storylines from the comic books. And I mean, it was pretty telling that as soon as Batman v Superman came out and he, his participation was viewed as a good thing that he started lobbying for this movie. I think that with the amount of, um, weight considerable weight that warner brothers has has put into making the dc work um it's not surprising that this is happening this quickly for me but um i either way i'm excited so i hope it's good i i hope it's good i believe it will be i'll take a batman movie like the town so absolutely so that's my news though What, what bring us home sir all right this is my last piece of news and i guess the last piece of news period I found this very interesting only because I've heard of this movie and seen this movie some time ago via avclub.com long before Blair Witch something went bump in the low budget dark written by Scott McDonald and it says this The Legend of Boggy Creek from 1972. Though not precisely found footage, the fact or fiction classic The Legend of Boggy Creek is indisputably one of the granddaddies of the form. 
Daniel Merrick, co-creator of the Blair Witch Project, cited it as a major influence. Directed and independently financed by former ad man Charles B. Pierce, the movie plays as a more or less straight documentary, and to an extent, it is one. Pierce got residents of Folk, Arkansas, to recreate their own actual encounters with the so-called Folk Monster, a Sasquatch-like creature said to lurk in the vast swamplands outside of town. Roughly half the cast play themselves, whereas the rest are amateur actors playing real people. No effort is made to distinguish which is which, but it isn't too hard to tell. The real folks do most of their low-key scenes, whereas the actors do most of the scenes of pants-wetting terror. Boggy Creek was a word-of-mouth phenomenon. Without any studio support, it played almost continuously throughout the 70s largely on the drive-in circuit, ultimately taking in the then-astronomical sum for an indie of $20 million. And it earned its success. Even today, the movie induces a state of almost childlike giddy terror. If Pierce, who passed away in 2010, wasn't the most sophisticated of directors, he was very good at tapping into what could be called the, quote, natural uncanny, end quote. Much of the movie was shot at dusk, with the sun sinking blood red over the bayou treetops, and the sound design, which leans heavily on frogs, crickets, and loons, puts the viewer right there in the middle of it all, alone. At one moment, the camera might land on a swaying tree branch or some critter, then an abrupt zoom or rack focus thrusts into an adjacent part of the swamp, just in time to catch a dark silhouette loping out of frame. Pierce may not have invented the half-glimpsed creature trope. The Patterson-Grimlin Bigfoot footage of 1967 probably got the ball rolling, but he perfected it long before in search of Unexplained Mysteries, The X-Files, and all the rest. Of course, Boggy Creek is frequently a hoot as well, with performances and a shooting style that seem to have come directly out of a 1950s industrial film, And how about those musical interludes? Fans often cite the mid-film tune, quote, Hey Travis Crabtree, end quote, as Boggy Creek's dorky highlight. But the title song is the true standout, in which an unseen balladeer speculates about the creature's fragile emotional state and concludes that he probably just needs companionship. Saying, quote, Perhaps he dimly wondered why there are no others such as I to touch, to love before I die, to listen to my lonely cry. Indol quotes there, do check out this article and the movie, The Legend of Boggy Creek from 1972. It is currently available on Netflix to rent on DVD. It's not streaming. Uh, I grew up watching this. I uh, My dad was a big fan of it back when it came out in the 70s, and he just said that this movie freaked him and his buddies out. It made them crap their pants. That's how scary it was. Because they, they've never seen anything wow. like that before in the 70s, you know, at the drive-in. You know, it was really cool. And then when I saw it the first time, you know, I did the whole watching it in the dark Actually, no, I think there's a lamp on, and I still got creeped out by it. I mean, it's a very good, well-made, effective movie, even though maybe it hasn't aged all that well, but to me, it still it has the effect of, uh, of, of the original Blair Witch Project. 
to where it's made to look like a documentary, and many documentaries don't really age bad because it captures a moment of time, you know, a specific moment in time. So I highly recommend it. Do check it out, and uh, let me know what you think. The Legend of Boggy Creek from 1972. Cool, that was really neat. Um, I... I don't know that I'm going to be willing to switch over to Netflix DVD for it, but I'll definitely keep an eye out for the streaming aspect of it and uh, give it a give it a good once over. That's pretty darn cool, especially since we just covered Blair Witch. So. Yeah. Good times, good times. All right, well, as we uh, talked about uh, last week, um, we do not have a bonus segment this week. And um, because of the amount of movies that we have to cover uh, going into our Friday the 13th uh, series review. Next week, we do kind of have a bonus segment. It's, um, and basically, uh, we just kind of looked at a couple of TV Halloween specials that were uh, reminiscent of our childhoods. And so I'm going to watch the one that uh, Tim recommended, and Tim is going to watch the one that I've recommended. And of course, Feel free to watch the, uh, one or both, or if you've already seen one or both, then let us know about them. Uh, so f- my pick to Tim was Garfield's Halloween Adventure from 1985. And Tim's pick to me uh, is The Last Halloween from 1991. So that's what we're going to do next week. It's, it's kind of a bonus segment, um, but at the same time, it's not one of our official bonus segments. So... That's what we'll be doing there. And without further ado, I believe we are going to get to the movies, are we not, sir? Yes, sir. Here we go, folks. It's the movies! never have opened this place again. There's been too much trouble here. Did you know that a young boy drowned the year before those two others were killed? The counselors weren't paying any attention. They were making love while that young boy drowned. His name was Jason. I don't want to scare anyone, but I'm going to give it to you straight about Jason. His body was never recovered from the lake after he drowned. And if you listen to the old-timers in town, they'll tell you he's still out there. Some sort of demented creature. Surviving in the wilderness. Full-grown by now. Stalking. Stealing what he needs. Living off wild animals and vegetation. Some folks claim they've even seen him. Right in this area. The girl who survived that night at Camp Blood, that Friday the 13th, Disappeared two months later. Vanished. Blood was everywhere. No one knows what happened to her. Legend has it that Jason saw his mother beheaded that night. And he took his revenge. A revenge that he'll continue to seek if anyone ever enters his wilderness again. And by now, I guess you all know, we're the first to return here. Five years. Five long years he's been dormant, and he's hungry. I was working the day that it happened, preparing meals. Here, I was the cook. Jason should have been watched every minute. 
He was... He wasn't a very good swimmer. We can go now, dear. I am Jason. Jason was my son, and today is his birthday. Oh, I couldn't let them open this place again. Could I? Not after what happened. the first four movies in the Friday the 13th franchise. We have the one that started it all, 1980s Friday the 13th. We're also going to be doing Friday the 13th Part 2, Friday the 13th Part 3, and Friday the 13th, the final chapter, in parentheses, but not really. <laughs> um, so I guess it's best in these cases to start at the beginning. Uh, 1980, Friday the 13th. It's an American slasher film. It's directed by Sean S. Cunningham. It's written by Victor Miller. The film stars Betsy Palmer, Adrian King, Harry Crosby, Laurie Bartram, Janine Taylor, Kevin Bacon. Yes, that Kevin Bacon. Mark Nelson and Robbie Morgan. And uh, the film takes place uh, very briefly in the time period of 1958, but spends the bulk of its time in 1979. Um we start off with these two young Crystal Lake camp counselors who uh, sneak off to go enjoy being young and dumb and full of cum. Um, and it uh, doesn't really work out very well for both of them. Flash forward to 21 years later, and now we've got this uh, reopening of Camp Crystal Lake. And we've got a new batch of kids who are here to try and get the... Um, get, get the summer camp up off the ground again. And, of course, this is at a time when summer camps were really in their heyday. Um, there, there's still several around and about, but they are definitely not as universally thought of as the pilgrimage that they were once before, anthropologically speaking. Now they're just kind of like specialized things depending on um, whatever group or interest you might have that would do something like that. But back during this time period, summer camps were like a big deal. You would go and spend like a month, um, uh, sometimes a couple of weeks, sometimes even longer, but generally about a month you would spend off in the woods at some big camp and they would do all sorts of great activities. And it was all about making friends and new relationships and stuff that would last and shape your childhood and hopefully last into adulthood. But as anybody who's ever been to any kind of camp knows, when whether they're co-ed or not, you find a way to make them co-ed. Which means if you'd go and visit the boys, if you were the girls' camp, or the boys would go and visit the girls' camp, or what have you. And, of course, teenagers were no different. And that's kind of the spirit with which this movie resides. And it's really kind of a cool concept. And I think that, um, much like Nightmare on Elm Street... Um, 
these movies just didn't age well. I think they were really important for their time because they took something that so many people had experienced and was something that was just so important um, and affected the childhoods and teenage years of so many people at the time and turned it into something that you almost couldn't escape from. Where Nightmare on Elm Street used the psyche and the mind and dreams, here they took something that was the core of a, of a childhood, that was the core of innocence, and made it something that would fill you with dread instead. Uh, I'm a poet and I didn't know it. And that's kind of the beauty of the film. Now, from there, we've got these kids. And again, uh, you know, you got these kids, and they're basically just trying to get the camp reopened and everything. But of course, shenanigans ensue. And they are just dropping like flies, especially if there is any form or fashion of sexual tension or proclivity or activity among any of them. They're dead. Just, they're dead. Um, and it's really kind of fun to watch the tenants that everybody can't, that everybody knows about from the Scream franchise. Again, that was Wes Craven, not here. Um, but you see these core tenets just completely being developed in this film. And then um, by the end, and I'm sorry, these films are 36 years old to begin with. And going so there is no spoiler section. You've either seen these or you haven't. Um, and then, of course, we come to find out that the killer is actually um, what's it, Pamela Voorhees. Because she has just gone crazy due to the fact that her mentally challenged son... Theoretically, was supposedly drowned in the lake because the kids who were supposed to be watching him were off doing sexy stuff. So it really took a lot of the ideas of what religious people thought and what the people and, you know, conservative ideas of sex and everything like that, contrasting that with the generation coming off of the sexual revolution, um, and then combining that with horror elements and slasher elements and everything like that. Um, it's a really neat, it's just a really great concept. And there's no denying that, even 36 years later, that it's a really, really great concept. That being said, not only did it not age well, um, but it's got a lot of flaws in it. It's just basically, you're literally, even at, even at this point in time, you can already see the rote mechanics working out. The acting is really, at best, all over the place, and at worst, just completely laughable. That being said, you don't need them to act well, you just need them to die well. And the movie delivers that most of the time. But even then, some of them are just kind of like, really, you think you're being inventive, but you're not. And, um, and, 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 and so you're left with these, uh, like, how the hell, we've got one of the kids, what, Alice or, no, no, it's not Alice, who is it? Like, Bill? Bill, Bill, uh, who's played by Harry Crosby, uh, is is killed, but he's, like, pinned to a wall. And then when you see that it's Pamela Voorhees is the killer, you're like, how the hell could she have done that, right? So you've got these kinds of things where you think they're being clever, but they're really kind of like red herrings uh, so that you're not thinking of what it is. And that kind of takes the shock value down a notch. 
So it's kind of this mixed bag in terms of its presentation, but I think the really core tenets of the idea are awesome, and I think there's still fun to be had, but it's, but it's not the greatest movie, uh, and it certainly hasn't aged well. That being said, I can give this one a solid three stars. So three stars for Friday the 13th, the first one. What do you got there, Tim? Oh, man, these are a treat to watch. <laughs> I, I will say this: I'm I'm incredibly glad. I'm very I'm I'm so glad that they are at least they're they're about ninety minutes apiece. And for the most part, especially the first four of these movies, they go by pretty quick. So I guess regardless of what I'm about to say, if you're into stuff like this, even mildly, you you'll find some entertainment in it, even if you are laughing at it for most of the time. So I'll I'll start off with that before I move into. My review. There's not a lot of tits in this movie, and I remember there being a lot of tits. I don't know, Matt, if you felt the same way, but I, I just remember as a kid hearing about Friday the 13th, and I was never allowed to watch it. No, not because of the gore. It was because of the nudity, and you got some side boob, you know, but... but Well, I think... I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I just... Uh, I, I think that... Um, think about when you were... When you're a kid, right? Um... Any boob is too much boob, right? So, Or any boob is a lot of boob. But coming from its producer, Sean Cunningham, he made a couple saucy softcore porn flicks before making this movie. And, and I mean, they're pretty saucy. I mean, there's just, you know, jiggly nudity all over the place. And, and, and what's interesting is that Cunningham made those porn movies, softcore porn movies, in hopes that he would make it big. And doing softcore porn was apparently the path that led to his bigness. I, I don't know. Led, led to his fame, in a way. But what's interesting about him, though, is that he ended up co-producing 1972's The Last House on the Left, which is ironically directed by Wes Craven. And so I thought that was kind of interesting. But what is kind of fascinating about Friday the 13th, the franchise itself, is that it's not really all that original. After the wild success of John Carpenter's Halloween in 1978, Sean Cunningham, again the producer, wanted to rip off Halloween success with a film about probably the most mysterious day of the year, which is Friday the 13th. So with little attention paid to the characters, paid to the plot, he had a title Friday the 13th, the genre, and the general idea that the film would revolve around clean-cut, what he calls the Pepsi generation of kids and their killer, and with a production budget of $550,000, this movie just moved quickly into production. I mean, he took what he learned with working with Craven on Last House, and all of his crazy experiences working on softcore porn films, and he applied it to this movie. He knew how to take a movie with a cheap-ass budget, well, cheapish budget, and create a successful product. Regardless of what you say about, and what you think about the quality of the film, there's no doubt that it takes a little bit of talent to create a movie like this and sell it the way Cunningham and Paramount sold it, and made loads and loads of money. And I'm very surprised by not only the lack of boobage, the side boob you see in the movie, but the lack of gruesome gore. And 
apparently, because there, you don't see a lot of the gory deaths, you know, as they are happening, and that's because of the time constraints played, in, played into effect. I mean, even with the great Tom Savini as their gore effects guy, there's not a whole lot of gore. And what's also interesting is that Sean Cunningham wanted to up the ante of shock value, which is what Halloween, the Halloween movie, apparently lacked. In the early 80s, George Romero's Dawn of the Dead set the bar high for gore effects. And since Tom Savini worked on Dawn of the Dead, he was hired uh, to work on Friday the 13th, which is pretty interesting. According to Cunningham, Friday the 13th became the first of its kind to become a major motion picture release and handled by a huge studio, which is Paramount. Apparently, Halloween and Carrie were both handled on a limited basis. You know, they didn't get this babying treatment that Friday the 13th did. It's kind of like how what, what Saul would end up doing in the 2000s. The first Saul was independently financed by, you know, a small production company, sold to Lionsgate, and then, boom, man, you know, every Saul movie, each one that happened, had a bigger budget, and it was promoted like crazy during October, and it had the the backing uh, and the support of Lionsgate as well. So this is kind of what happened with Friday the 13th, and you really didn't see this happening with products like Halloween or even Nightmare on Elm Street. But in the documentary that they made about all of the Friday the 13th, Friday the I keep wanting to say Nightmare on Elm Street and Freddy the 13th because of I still haven't gotten past our reviewing of Nightmare on Elm Street last year, all those movies last year. Um, but very much like the documentary, the companion documentary we reviewed with the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, there is one made by the same people for... Friday the 13th, and it's called Crystal Lake Memories. And according to that documentary, uh, Cunningham, he says that Friday the 13th started the themed slasher genres and created the imitators, even though Friday the 13th probably wouldn't have been made if it were not for Halloween and its success. Now, Cunningham didn't say that last part. I said that last part, because when I close to when I started this review, I mentioned that the Friday the 13th movies, the, the franchise itself, isn't really that original. And I say that because they st- they stole a lot of stuff. The very idea of Friday the 13th stems from the success of Halloween. And if there was no Halloween, there very well could not have been a Friday the 13th. You notice this with the music as well. They take so many cues from Psycho, it's absolutely ridiculous. But I digress. The franchise comes up with the dumbest and most random excuses also for the characters to die and to separate into smaller groups. For example, in this movie, in the first one, while finishing a round of strip monopoly, because whenever it's a thunderstorm and there's only three of you, two women and one dude, why not agree to play strip monopoly? And why play strip monopoly when you could have played a less taxing game like... Poker. Strip poker, for example. Maybe they were getting Monopoly money. I don't know. But back to the example. While finishing a round of strip Monopoly during a thunderstorm, which a woman named Brenda is down to her brawl in under ruse, she suddenly says, and I quote, Oh, I think the windows in my cabin were left open. End quote. It's been raining and thundering for a while already, for probably hours. 
by the time she came to this realization, closing the windows now probably wouldn't make much of a difference. Her bedroom should already be a shallow pond. She doesn't go to her cabin, though, to go and shut her windows, but she ends up going into the bathroom, which is the same bathroom where another girl got axed moments before. So she goes in there, Brenda goes in there to brush her teeth. And my question is, why why, why didn't they make her excuse to leave the ever-so-kinky strip monopoly game for the windows and not just wanting to get ready for bed? I, I don't get that. Like, wh- why randomly say, ooh, I think I left my windows open? Because you never see her go back and actively close the windows. You just see her show up in the the bathroom ready to brush her teeth and comb her hair. And stuff like this is peppered throughout the movie and it was just kind of annoying the living shit out of me because they're just coming up with random excuses to break people up. And now Matt mentioned, he was meant talking about uh, Miss Voorhees for a while, her big reveal at the end, and when he find out the real reason why she is killing all these kids. And I wish her reasoning, I, I wish the reasoning for Miss Voorhees came across more sympathetically, personally. She just wanted the camp to remain closed because she doesn't want any other mother to go through or experience what she did with Jason. I get that, and, and, and honestly, that could have made her character more of a poignant character, more of a character that some people could identify with, even though she is killing all these, you know, murdering all these teenagers, but they're kind of horn dogs, and most of them probably deserve to get an axed in the back, or an axe in the face. So, I, I think making her character more sympathetic, and the, the very idea of the audience kind of understanding her would have made her that much more powerful and that much more sadistic. Also, you have the incredibly long, drawn-out, prolonged fight scene at the end of the movie between Alice and Miss Voorhees, which is tiring as fuck and choreographed horribly. I mean, there were many chances for one of them to deliver that deadly finish to the other. It's just comical to watch that not happen. And then, really, my last couple points about Friday the 13th. Another in a long line of ripoffs from previous movies, the ending of Carrie apparently influenced the end of the film when she gets in the canoe and she's on the water and suddenly Jason, the, 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 the corpse, uh, the body of young Jason comes out and grabs her by, uh, you know, around the neck. Well, if you remember in Carrie, at the end of Carrie, the girl who tries to befriend Carrie during the movie goes to her grave, I think, and suddenly the hands of Carrie burst out of the grave and grab the girl and basically pull her into hell. Well, very much like Carrie, the Friday the 13th ending was supposed to be a dream and was not supposed to happen. And so you ask yourself, why did she go into the canoe? It doesn't make any sense. Well, it's because you could say, well, she maybe being surrounded by water was the closest she'll be to safety. Yeah, that makes sense too. But it's a dream. If you play it off as a dream, it just makes a little bit more sense. And it's able to be that much more random. And of course, that kind of gets debunked in the second movie when apparently it's not a dream. Finally, and probably the most ingenious 
maybe the only ingenious thing that came out of this movie was the kill her mommy line. And apparently, which is said by Miss Voorhees, and that is the line that influenced that classic Jason theme where the k from kill and the mo from mommy was run through some kind of fancy music machine, some synthesizer echoey effect machine. And it came out with that cool echo. So you get that from Kill Her Mommy. And I just thought that was pretty cool because it it just kind of bridged that relationship, that sadistic relationship between Jason and his mother. So my rating for Friday the 13th will have to be 2.5 out of 5. By no means is it the worst of the bunch And for what it is, it is entertaining. And personally, I think Kevin Bacon's death scene is by far the most effective death scene in this film. So 2.5 out of 5 for me. Very good. All right. Moving on to Friday the 13th Part 2, 1981 American slasher film. This one's directed by Steve Miner. And this one stars Amy Steele, John Fury, and Adrian King. Um, Those are the only real bigger names that you might have ever heard of uh let's see here so this is picking up pretty much right after the first one but again does a little side shift kind of a thing um alice hardy is recovering and everything she ends up getting murdered very quickly after discovering uh pamela Voorhees' head in her fridge <laughs> in a very exciting exchange season, of course, is killed by Jason Voorhees. Uh, we then move to five years later, and uh, there's now a camp, um, and it's kind of like, um, it's like a camp building kind of thing that's kind of catty-cornered to Crystal Lake. So it's not really on Crystal Lake, but it's basically at Crystal Lake, right? Um and we're now seeing the transition from the natural or the preternatural to the supernatural, as it were, in the idea of Jason Voorhees coming to, um, in his vengeance, as it were, coming to bear. Um, all right. This one for me, it's a lot harder for me to, um, say that it's that it's good or anything but it still is and here's why because they finally what they did with this one was the first one despite whether or not it um it's trying to to steal or borrow or and be inspired by halloween um or any other number of previously existing properties the first one was was like the serious movie if you will. It, it was kind of like the Genesis and it was meant to be something that was truly frightening. This one is where it starts to enter, but doesn't fully, uh, or at least intentionally. This one is where it starts to kind of leave the seriousness and enter the camp, but still be um, scary. And what I think is really interesting here is that we start seeing, again, you start seeing more and more tenets, not just of this particular franchise, but of all the things that horror movies are known for. And I think that uh, they definitely up the ante in terms of the gruesomeness and the gore uh, and the violence factor. Um, 
mainly because I think that they're trying to show they were they're very from a very early point trying to make Jason out to be uh, this uh, just basically this this force of evil. And and again, I, I'm uh, in this one. Uh, sure, think Michael Myers, right? But the idea here is that he he's basically just imbued with the spirit of killing, right? He has it, all he knows is death and destruction, and that is the channeling that has happened from his mother basically and so it's kind of interesting how they chose to build on that and again it's the concepts behind the movie uh of these two first movies that really um bolster them and i think that the kill that the that the killing style is also they really up the ante unfortunately it came at the cost of everything else uh the acting is even worse than this one and um they tried too hard to bring a relation to the first movie with the camp stuff in terms and i don't mean campiness but actual crystal lake um that it 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 was almost everything was really just a plot device to get to the next kill which is something that tim um remarked about the first movie i felt it was more organic in the first movie this one it's pretty clearly obvious that they're just trying to get jason out there and yet in this one, because it's the first time we're really seeing the killing machine um, that is Jason Voorhees, it works. I think it works more than it doesn't. And unfortunately, it's just bogged down by just horrid, horrid acting. I don't think there's any acting that's... Thing. But even still, the inventiveness and the core... Uh, tenets of horror movies, the core tenets of the series, are really shining through. And it's as... And honestly, I can say this is the last bright spot for like three or four movies <laughs> in this series. Um, but I still, this one ekes it out at a three. I can still give this one a three. Um, it's a lot more fun, um, especially when you know that they've set it up at this point at the closing shots of Pamela, his head still on the altar and everything. You know, Jason's, Jason's not quite done for yet. So three stars on this one as well. And I can assure you that um, we're not going to see another three star from me for a little bit. Uh, what do you got there, Tim? So Tom Savini, the special effects score guy from the first movie, didn't return to do the effects for the sequel. And it shows. And he didn't return because, kind of like what I mentioned before, it's because the story, uh, the new story completely negated the ending of the first film, where Jason is definitely dead and the story is over. The canoe scene was supposed to be a dream. Um, Cunningham, though, I think he's still a producer. I don't remember if he's a producer or not on this one, but he basically just kind of pieced out after the first one, and I guess just since then has just been collecting the royalties, and Paramount took this one over. And uh, you've had kind of new blood come in and take over creative side of the Friday the 13th storytelling. So, like what Matt said, it's more of the mystical, 
you know, fantasiful Jason story is now coming into play. And I do like, I, I must say, the titles have got to be the best part of these movies. I like how the main title of Friday the 13th just, like, explodes to reveal the part two, just like an action movie. It reminds me of the movie within the movie of Last Action Hero. Every single title that comes up, every single opening credit just explodes in a fiery blaze of glory. You know, so it just kind of reminded me of that. It's, like, really weird. Like, they're really trying to appeal to the the crazy, you know, 80s rock and roll kids of that time, which is probably the majority of the people who went in, saw these movies multiple times. The characters are a little bit more annoying in this one. The Scott character is confirmation that all dudes wearing colored Croc brand shirts with the collards up are total douchebags. Uh, I, in some way, it made me feel a little bit better knowing that douchebags were wearing their Croc t-shirts with the collards flipped up even back in 1982. I kind of want to ask you, Matt. I don't kind of want to ask you, but I do want to ask you. Have you ever been to a friendly gathering where there are only two people dancing in the living room to canned 80s rock music and the lights are on and fully bright and the other party goers are playing board games? Like, is that an 80s thing, or did something, did stuff like that actually happen? Because I've noticed that not only in part two, but I, I saw it in part three and also in part four, where you have two people that want to dance randomly to softly played music, 80s canned rock music, and nobody else is participating. Like, everybody else is doing more domestic things that one would do when camping out. Um, I've seen it once or twice. I mean, I I don't necessarily think it was. I mean, it it wasn't as some. It wasn't it wasn't done as blatantly as it was in these movies in terms of just trying to set up the idea of who's going to die next because you know these are the people who are trying to get it on. But yeah, I mean, I've definitely seen some people who were just kind of in the mood and into it, and they decide they want to dance a little bit and fuck everybody else. They'll either join in or they won't. So, I mean, I've seen it a couple of times, but not enough that I would say that it's, you know, a staple or, you know, so maybe it was something that was done back then. At the Matt household, everybody dances in the living room. <laughs> That's right. But, you know, hey, the franchise with this movie has now graduated from bad guy POV shots to now legs and feet, which is very scary. And then the reveal of baghead Jason Voorhees. Now, apparently, Jason wearing the sack for a mask, it's a possibility that that was even riffed off from The Town That Dreaded Sundown, which came out in 1976, which is the film about a hooded murderer who stalks and kills people in a small Texas town. In fact, how the bag sits over Jason's head looks exactly how it sat over the killer in The Town That Dreaded Sundown. It's 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 an interesting... Well, I, I thought it was an interesting kind of thing I was able to pick out from watching the movie. Uh, I thought the wheelchair death scene was pretty cool. The wheelchair-bound guy got... What was it, like an axe in the head or the machete in the face? And his wheelchair goes down all those different steps into the lake. And apparently back in the 80s, that was controversial. And I kind of wonder, would that be controversial now? Probably so. And worse. But, however, I get to my last thing I want to comment on with this movie, and it's the three most annoying things of this movie, other than the lack of boobs, again. And those three annoying things about this movie are, number one, 
that they do a lot of tricking the audience by breaking the fourth wall. They do this way too much in this movie. For example, the shower scene at the beginning of the movie with Alice, the girl, the final girl from the first movie. She's in the shower, and the camera is kind of is walking towards the shower curtain, I suppose. And you think that Jason is creeping up on her and is about to slash her to bits. But then Alice abruptly pulls the shower curtain back and looks directly into the camera as if she knows that she fooled the audience watching this movie. It happens multiple times in this film where they where the characters just kind of stop, look at you, and give you a little wink. That's the equivalent. Number two... Also, how did Jason and his mom in the first one, uh, when, when she was the killer, have the time to elaborately hide bodies all around the camp and perfectly timed to make an appearance when needed? Like the body that was in the tree. Somebody's walking past the tree and the body, like, magically falls down. It doesn't fall out of the tree. It's, like, perfectly hanging from the tree. I found that to be pretty interesting. It's not like the girl, you know, just randomly stumbles upon a corpse that's lying there already killed. And then my third most annoying thing about this movie is that both of these movies now feature the final girl who had several chances to either kill or even disable their attacker. But instead, they opt out for retreat. You know, like when Jason's hacking through a door or a window, you take advantage of that opportunity of his exposed hands and arms and like full on, like, I don't care if you use a fork, just sit there and fork those hands to death. I I mean, I would have liked to have seen more of that. And luckily you do see that more of an extent, I guess, in part three. But for part two, I am going to have to sit on yet again, 2.5 out of five for me. Fair enough. All right. Well, I mean, it's not as uh, dire as I as I thought these were going to be at this point. All right. So now we're going to move into Friday the 13th, part three, 1982 American 3D slasher film uh, directed by Steve Miner. And uh, of course, this one here stars uh, Dana Kimmel. Paul Crata and Richard Brooker primarily. We do have, uh, again, several other people in the film as well, including some flashbacks to part two. But we have a whole new group of kids. But this one basically more or less picks up almost immediately after the first one. And we have a whole new set of uh, kids who are going to another uh, you know, another big house and have a big party and do all this stuff. Uh, and much like um, Tim noted, basically, you get a real quick sense for who the assholes are and everything, and you already know how it's going to go down. Because now we're in, uh, now we're in part three, and of course, um, you you have this uh, uh, established formula, basically, right? So we've now established that Jason is. Um, is now the driving force behind everything. We understand he's just going to go after anyone that he thinks. And at this point, it's no longer about 
uh, killing kids over sex or anything like that. It's basically, this is just ingrained that all kids must be the same. All kids in this age group must be the same, especially if they're in these kinds of scenarios. And so, just like his mom, he's going to kill him and knock him off. So, now, it's no longer about camping and stuff like that. It's no longer about the camp counselors. It's all about creating the scenario uh, that puts groups of kids together to try and fuck around. And then, of course, allowing the shenanigans to ensue. Um, so here's my now. Now this is the movie where we get the iconic hockey mask. So finally, uh, I guess we're doing something semi-original. I suppose Tim's going to deconstruct that later too. Um, but uh, he, the problem is, is that as I noted, this was 3D. Okay, um, and so you get an awful lot of gimmicky stuff that just doesn't translate to 2D, especially 34 years later. Um, and so a lot of the stuff loses its appeal. And so now you're only in the mood to watch, to, to basically enjoy the experience of the slasher, right? That you're just trying to get the full slasher experience, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And so you're trying to peg which kids are going to go in what order and who is truly the survivor, right? Because one of the things that the movie, that the franchise rightly does is it starts to spin, uh, it starts to spin off the idea of the virginal, um, successor who's uh really good and gonna and and is deserving of survival and make and at least give you an idea of it's not always so cut and dry as to who's gonna survive and so that adds to the fun of this and then from there once again we're just trying to deal with oh who's gonna get picked off by stabbing in the face with an oar uh or who's going to you know get impaled with hot pokers or what have you right so that and all that's fine and dandy it's just at this point you can totally see that the the formula is tried and true um and that it's more about the fun of the experience instead of actually trying to be good combined with the fact that this one um is uh that is, is that this one is in 3d i mean it's just not it's really not all that great um i come off of this one with a 2.5 um mainly because i liked the flashback ideas and i liked the fact that they're trying to inject some new ways to bring life to the scenario. Um, but it just, overall, it just, it's, it's starting to become a retread. And you can tell. So, which brings, which makes you almost kind of glad that they saw the, that they thought that they saw the writing on the wall to bring what they're going to call the final chapter to come up next. So... This one um, just barely comes in at 2.5. It's it's okay, um, but you can it, the 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 sheen is definitely wearing off. What do you got there, Tim? First off, how about that funky disco opening credit theme? To <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for Ethel Merman to jump in there. Oh my right, gosh, so. it was like it's so distractingly bad. Man, I, I don't know if they were intending that 
you know, for, for me for me to have that effect, for the audience to have that effect. Because you know, you know, there had to be some kids at in that movie theater that thought that was the coolest thing that they ever saw. That really was like dancing in the seats, and they went back and paid another four fifty to witness that opening theme song in 3D again. It's like if you take Marauder's 80s score from Scarface, put it in the blender, throw in a lot of, like, ABBA and, like, really bad ABBA, and maybe put in some canned disco shit, that's what you're going to get. And daggum is it not so freaking distracting. Face it, the franchise took a turn for the 80s worse with this one. You've got a super hokey disco theme song and a, and a leather-clad, chain-carrying bike gang that do carry oversized chains. And I, I don't remember ever seeing them actually use the chains, other than I think one person gets hung by their chain. It's just the music and the idea of this gang is so over-the-top, it's distracting. It's interesting how the crazy old guy was killed off in the last one, so they now need a new crazy old guy, but this time carrying an eyeball and breaking the fourth wall for the 3D gross-out eyeball popping out at you effect. This movie is gimmicky 3D galore, ripped right from the House of Wax yo-yo gimmick. Like, how did how did that conversation go? Like, how did they plan all this stuff out? Hey, Producer, how do we take full advantage of 3D? Apple juggling. I tell you, it's going to be a hit with all the kids. Apple juggling. And so you watch the apple juggling scene where these two guys are juggling apples right next to each other. And you're already like, what the fuck are, what, what, what the, are they juggling apples? Why? It It's so juvenile. And then the camera, then they do like an over the head shot. So it looks like the apples are going into the screen. Right off the bat, right now, I'm just going to tell you, just do yourself a favor if you plan on watching these movies. Just spend the seven or six bucks on Amazon for the Friday the 13th Part 3 actually in 3D and experience this movie in 3D. Because in my research, I found out that apparently the 3D Fort's time is actually pretty good and definitely worth checking out. So the seven bucks for the 3D Blu-ray might actually be worth it. Yeah, and this movie, again, goes into the why-don't-you-just-kill-him-already tropes. You know, she has a shovel for a good portion of the ending. Why doesn't she use it when Jason is down or out cold for a moment and decapitate him? The movie does feature probably one of the best kills in the entire series, where this guy is randomly naked and doing a handstand, like walking around the upstairs rooms just constantly doing a handstand and Jason shows up and splits him right down the middle from taint to forehead. You know, I I mean, there was really no reason for that guy, for that character to be doing handstands for such a long period of time, but to get split down the taint. I think that was a good call for whoever came up with that idea. Uh, It was effective. You see it happen and you see the aftermath and it's well worth it. Let's see, what else do I got here? Uh, Some good things about this movie. I did like some of the barn scene stuff at the end. I like the progression of events, I guess, with Jason chasing the girl. They end up in the barn, and there's kind of like a little cat and mouse game. But that only lasts for a few minutes before the rest of the movie just turns into the rehash, a rehash of the previous... uh, Actually, no, the first Jason movie. Because by the end of this one, she ends up back 
on a canoe, just like the first movie, and guess who pops out of the water, not deformed younger Jason, but the rotting dead corpse of Miss Voorhees, for some reason, pops out of the water, grabs the girl. And it's still, that. I mean, it's still all a dream. She wakes up the next, you know, she wakes up sometime later and she's in a hospital, I think. I think I'm remembering that right. Or no, she gets taken to the loony bin. That's what happens. So where there is light at the end of the tunnel for this movie, uh, all that light quickly gets shut out by the really shitty characters, the really bad writing, and the rehashing of the first movie. And it's just, it's sad. But yet, I still enjoy it more than the other two. I was still entertained by it. By how dumb and how bad it was. It made for a pleasant time. I'll just, I'll say that. Um, So I give this one three out of five. Wow, an actual reversal. (laughs) Well, that's... That is crazy. Okay. Um, I did not see that. I got to be honest with you. I did not see that coming. Unfortunately, we can't all be as cool as Tim with our 3D TVs. No, I, 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 I never saw it in 3D. And, uh, I thought you said to spend the, I thought that's why you said to spend the money on well, it. Well, after reading about it, people say just. Oh, but no, but the okay. thing about the movie gotcha. is if you get it, you don't need to have a 3D TV because it's. How I mean, how it was shot. It, it's the uh, the, the oh, green it's the and, old stereoscope. Yeah, yeah. It's the old so it comes with two of, okay. glasses, yeah. so you can watch it on any TV. Oh, okay. Yeah, sweet. All right, I'm thinking it was the. I'm thinking it's got to have the 3D Blu-ray, the 3D Blu-ray player, and the 3D TV with the 3D glasses. Oh, yeah. No, that would only improve the experience. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's. Fun. All right, cool. Well, then we come finally to Friday the 13th, the final chapter. Uh, 1984 slasher film, this one directed by Joseph Zito, and stars Kimberly Beck, Peter Barton, Corey Feldman, E. Eric Anderson, Crispin Glover, Alan Hayes, Barbara Howard, Lawrence Monison, uh, Joan Freeman, Judy Arneson, Camilla Moore, and Carrie Moore. Now, this, of course... Um, by saying the final chapter, this was where they basically just threw anything at the wall to see if it would stick and brought bigger names in just for the sake of being able to say, I was in a Friday the 13th movie. This is, this is basically literally reaching the fever pitch. You have to understand, uh, Freddy was super big at this time. Uh, we're actually working into TV deals. You're just a few years away from seeing Nightmare on Elm Street on TV, uh, and Friday the 13th on TV, the series. So they had truly infected pop culture at this point. And so, um, here though, uh, it shows. It shows that all this is is just at this point. It's a blatant cash grab. And then, of course, they're say, they're on top of that. They're saying it's the final chapter. So, um, the only thing where they're trying to the only thing that maintains anything in the previous series is that it literally picks up like right after the events. It's like one day later, um, or like that following night, or whatnot. And Jason is taken to the morgue. And so now there's finally a body to deal with. And then, well, that body decides that it wasn't done yet after all. And then we just, and it's the same damn thing all over again. Now, I just, this one I really don't like. Um, 
And, and it's for all those reasons. It's just clearly there to make money. They weren't, they didn't really, I just really felt they weren't even trying. Um, I think they were just sitting there going, look, they're, people are going to come because it's Jason, just like people were going to come because it's Freddy. Um, I think that in terms of trying to say goodbye, as it were, I think A Nightmare on Elm Street did it better, but not necessarily that that makes that one a good installment either, but that at least they were trying to do more than Friday the 13th is. Um I can't say that it's not that there that there aren't redeeming qualities to it. I thought that this was probably one of the um coolest I, I mean, I don't know. I think that um I, I don't know. I like Ted's death getting stabbed in the face through the um uh, through the projector screen. I thought that was probably one of the coolest ones. Uh, I, I, I don't think it can beat being cut in half while doing a naked handstand. But for me, came pretty close. I just thought that was, you know, completely fun. Um, so there are little tiny breaths of life. But by this point, you know it's just a cash grab. Um, this movie would get two stars from me save one thing. <clears throat> Tommy gets to kill Jason. We're actually seeing for the first time a dude is like kind of surviving, right? Um, <laughs> and as he, and we go and he, we, we get, um, the machete goes into Jason's head and then you think it's over. And then Jason's fingers go to move. And Tommy all of a sudden just, Die! 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 You're right. Well, <laughs> I gave it a quarter star just for that. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Um, clearly they weren't done yet. Nobody knew it at the time. But this is just, I mean, yeah. 2.25 on this one. And I feel that's, yeah, it's 2.25. Die, die. Anyway, what do you got, Tim? Bring us home. <laughs> this was my favorite of the bunch, surprisingly. And I think it was because it felt more like a movie. It felt more like a bigger movie, like they were actually trying to make a movie. It didn't feel like they were relying on the same setup as the previous movies. Like they were trying to do something a little different. Crispin Glover, I thought, was great in this movie. Especially when I found out that Crispin Glover and... I'm trying to remember what the guy's name, if I wrote it down here. The one who called him a dead fuck, his friend. I've written somewhere. But apparently the two of them, that entire car scene and most of their dialogue together was improvised. And that whole conversation was great. I really liked the buildup of those characters and their, you know, in their, in their interactions. And it really doesn't go anywhere because once Jason comes into play and starts killing people, and that's pretty much the end of them, you know, you don't really build any connection to any of these characters. Uh, Maybe the final girl kind of you're supposed to, but even that doesn't really work the whole way. And I really didn't care too much for these guys, but I, I just was very much entertained by Crispin Glover's character. I just liked how his character progressed until he stopped progressing rather abruptly, and that was the end of that. So you kind of feel a little bit cheated out of it, but still, I guess it's more about the ride than any particular end result. Um, 
Apparently, producer Frank Mancuso Jr. wanted to bring the series to a close. Uh, A big reason was due to Paramount, actually, feeling the critical backlash towards the Friday the 13th movies and other slasher films. Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel were very vocal about how they hated not only this movie, but every single Friday the 13th film. For the first movie, Gene Siskel even went as far as to publishing Betsy Palmer's home address in hopes that people would write her horrible fan mail. Uh, And he basically spoiled the end of the movie because he thought that, well, if you know what happens at the end, you're not going to go and see the movie. Well, people still want to see the movie, and they didn't give a fuck what these two guys had to say about these films. And it's just amazing. Like, I don't think they're great movies, but I, I don't think they're going to rot a kid's mind if they watch it once or twice or, or you know, whatever. Uh, so do yourself a favor. Go back. Find those reviews. They're hilarious. But because of all this critical backlash, Paramount didn't want to make another movie. So they wanted to go out with a bang and actually kill Jason properly. So they brought back Tom Savini. He came back because since he was the one that created Jason, he was going to be the one to kill Jason. I do think that concerning the ending of this movie, the cat and mouse aspect played out better uh, in this one as well as the third film. I definitely enjoyed Jason's demise for whatever it was worth. I, I liked the character of Tommy. I liked the actor. I liked. I, I just liked. I, I like his performance. It just felt like he was having fun, and he's also a good child actor. Fe- Corey Feldman is, and I thought it was very interesting how Corey Feldman was supposed to keep doing these movies, but he ended up becoming Steven Spielberg's kid and had to go off and do The Goonies and various other movies. And I'm kind of glad he didn't do the next one because we'll get to the next one next week, and it's pretty goddamn awful. Um, You complained about not seeing any of the gore and any of the killings in these movies. Wait until you watch the next one and you hardly see anything. But I I do like the Tommy character. I like how his character was utilized in the movie. Actually, I felt bad for him, and I didn't want to see him get screwed over. Yeah. Oh, and as a major plus for the movie, this is the tittiest of the Friday the 13th movies yet. If you come to watch these movies to, you know, to, to get a rise out of lady parts. There are men parts in this movie, which I thought was, you know, equal opportunity uh, enjoyment for for both sexes. You see a lot of it, uh, significantly more of it in this movie. So that, 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 to me, this is what Friday the 13th is, is this film. There were more death scenes in this movie that I enjoyed as well. I didn't understand really why Tommy, or how Tommy knew to get into Jason's head you know, talking about his mother and whatnot. I don't remember it actually being established earlier on that Corey Feldman was knowledgeable, that Tommy was knowledgeable of Jason before. So I thought that was a little weird. But all in all, again, I I, I enjoyed the performances. I enjoyed some of the dialogue. Come to find out, a lot of it was improvised, you know, with Crispin Glover and Lawrence, I think, is or Ted is the character name. So again... The movie would have been significantly different without its particular cast and improvisations. So I give this one again. It's not that it's not a rating to write home about, but three point two five out of five. So far, it's the most fun Friday the Thirteenth yet in my book. 
No, anyway, you slice it. The the aggregate rating for the SLS cast is two point seven five across the board. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Uh, for the first four Friday the Thirteenth movies. Okay, well that does conclude the movies for this week. Next week's movies are continuing in the series Friday the Thirteenth: A New Beginning, Friday the Thirteenth Part Six: Jason Lives, Friday the Thirteenth Part Seven: The New Blood, and Friday the Thirteenth Part Eight: Jason takes manhattan ah uh, i never forget that uh trailer for that movie where it's just cutting across the hudson river uh and then they come up off the off the hudson river and then pan around as a reverse pan and jason just comes up out of the water it was uh yeah and i think it was like he's coming to town with a few days to kill or something like that. it was yeah <laughs> uh at any rate, all right, so that brings us to the end of the movies and now puts us up to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel one. All right, well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLSCast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at Nitwit12345. You can also climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. As always, you can follow us on you can subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. I want to take a quick time out to just thank our friends over at We Are Not Here to Please You, and of course our friends over at Midnight Movie Nights for their lovely words and thanks and good things that they had to say about us and our celebration of our 200th episode. And so, until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Kevin Bacon, I get to say this. Any idiot can get laid when they're famous. That's easy. It's getting laid when you're not famous that takes some talent. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening.